The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Mark 6, 30-44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And then he said to him, And then they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Kevin, for reading it twice. So, good morning, everyone. Glad to be standing up here with you, not late. I preached at the Cool Springs location, and as their service started at 10 o'clock rather than 9.30, so um, I drove a little faster than normal, (laughs) got here, and I was so glad that there was a baptism. Uh, (laughs) Not only was it a powerful demonstration of the gospel truth and the beauty of what God does in restoring us to himself, but it gave me about three minutes of time to calm myself down and focus on the task at hand. Um, Third time is always a charm. I I, I like preaching at the 11 o'clock service the best because I've had I went 0 for 2, so usually the third time I can go 1 for 3. Um, so it's, a, again, a great delight, and my name is Paul Lim, and I have the great pleasure and privilege to share with you the Word of God, both on a weekly basis as a Sunday school Bible study teacher, as well as uh, being a scholar in residence. I get to preach every once in a while. So let's pray, and we'll uh, look at our text today together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for who you are that you are ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. That as we have listened to your word being read, now would you please open your lips and open our hearts so that we may hear from you and through the instrument of the gospel preaching that your kingdom will expand. Give us your peace and joy and love. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going through this uh, sermon series called Encounters with Christ, 
And today, the group of people who encounter Jesus is the hungry crowds. Um, to be more precise, it is the hungry Jewish crowds who are hungry for more than one thing. I'd like to share with you uh, three points this morning, uh, but the final point will loop back into the first point, thereby sort of creating a uh, circle of life with Christ both as the beginning and the end of our life's journey. Before we get to the text, I'd like to talk briefly about crowds of people. Um, I would like to share two kind of perspectives. One is from the Bible. So some of you may be familiar with the book of Acts, but I don't think you're familiar with Acts 19.32 as to what it says. It says something about crowds of people, and it's really hilarious, actually. So Paul had gone, gone to the city of Ephesus, and he had done ministry there, and he got a lot of people riled up because uh, the city of Ephesus had uh, worshipped uh, Artemis as the great goddess of the city of Ephesus. Paul had come and created this kind of commotion. So there was a civic leader and a guild leader named uh, Demetrius, and Demetrius got everyone kind of riled up to uh, arrest Paul and cause trouble. In verse 32 of Acts 19, it says this, The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another, and this is my favorite part. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Don't you love it? I mean, every time I read that verse, I crack up because most of the people had no idea why we were there at all. Why am I using Alexa? I have no idea. Why am I called to use this rather than that email address? I got to convince a friend of mine to stop using AOL.com and use Google.com. Peer pressure. Why are we doing that? I don't know. No moral judgment rendered here, however, by the writer of Acts. Another perspective is given by this uh, German philosopher that we talked about here and there uh, named Friedrich Nietzsche, a 19th century existentialist philosopher who had very, very strong derision towards the crowds. He called them the European herd, and he consistently ridiculed this herd mentality. This is what he said in his book, Thus Spake uh, Zarathustra. The delight in the crowd is more ancient than the delight in the eye. And as long as the good conscience is identified with the crowd, only the bad conscience is I. Individuality is stifled and crushed by groupthink. Elsewhere, he wrote, today when the crowd animal, herd animal in Europe, is the only one who attains and distributes honors, when equality of rights to all can easily get turned around into equality of wrongs, what I mean is into a common war against everything rare, strange, privileged, the higher man, the higher soul, the higher duty, the higher responsibility, the creative fullness of power and mastery. He says, when the crowds dictate and determine everything, then individuality and creativity gets chucked out the window. So he didn't seem to like crowds very much at all. As we will see today in our text, however, we'll get to see the attitude of Jesus toward the crowds, hungry crowds, who soon may even become hangry crowds. We'll see. Three words or points are worth noting at the outset. First point we'll look at is compassion. Second point will be cooperation. Third point will be confusion. But confusion circling back to compassion. First point, then, is compassion, but more specifically, divine compassion. 
What do you think would be the first reaction of God when God sees you? Let me ask again. What do you think would be the reaction of God when God sees you? What would be the thought of God when God thinks about you? Apathy? Giving up? Contempt? Judgmentalism? I don't know. I think the phrase, this Latin phrase, misericordia Dei, is apt. That means, in translation, God's mercy. Mercy of God. In my life journey with the Lord, this is what comes back again and again. When I think about me apart from Christ, when I think about me in light of the law, I deserve judgmentalism, I deserve apathy, I deserve abandonment. But when I think of myself in light of who Christ is, then I come right back to this misericordia day, the mercy of God. So the first point is divine compassion. This chapter that has been read for us is quite a chapter. It begins with Jesus uh, saying that he has no honor in his own hometown. Did you know that? Chapter 6 begins with that. He went in his hometown accompanied by his disciples, and he began to teach during the Sabbath, and many heard more amazed. But then that amazement, that astonishment, quickly turned into this opposition. We know who you are. We know your parents. We know your brother's names. You have a brother named James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And further, we learned that he actually had sisters. So that means he had at least six siblings. That means he grew up in a crowded household, right? And then he had lots of back and forth. And then, so he gets rejected by his own, own hometown people. And then the second part of the chapter actually tells us that he sends out the 12 apostles to do, go and, and do God's work. And we will soon find out what happened to them. But then so the 12 are sent out. And furthermore, and this is a very important interlude that we often forget when we study the, this particular story, and that is the execution of John the Baptist. Now, why is that so important? It is important because John the Baptist was, uh, to put it bluntly, he was the man. He was the religious leader. He was the person who was actually singled out as a precursor of the messianic figure. He was looked upon as, even though he was a funny man wearing funny clothes, eating funny food, proclaiming some fierce message, everyone flocked to John the Baptist. But because of this kind of political shenanigans, he gets arrested, he gets in incarcerated, and he gets executed, and pardon the crudity, his head is placed on a platter as a display of joviality in the royal court. So really, really morbid and bizarro story, but that provides a very immediate backdrop of why crowds are coming to Jesus. You see, they, were, they used to go to John the Baptist. They used to go to John the Baptist, and they were, he was a very prominent figure, but because of the execution, that the story that falls right before ends at verse 29, now we pick up the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in verse 30 and onward. So we read verse 30 right here, and we read that the apostles are super pumped. They were excited and yet tired and exhausted. Jesus saw that they needed a retreat, and rightly so. They had done their first mission trip, and it turned into a spectacular success. So they come back, and they're excited to tell Jesus, hey, this is what we have done in the name of God, in our God, and this is what God can do. Verse 31, then because so many people are coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. So he said to them, look, come with me by yourselves to a desolate place, and let's get some rest. 
Completely understandable human desire. This is what our Lord desired of his disciples, right? Let's see what happens in verse 32. They went ahead by themselves in a boat, and verse 33, guess what? The people saw them going over there, and they said, we better go and learn from this guy. So they got ahead of them and landed. So when Jesus landed, there was already a welcoming party. They were not necessarily that welcome, right? I mean, they get there, they wanted to get some rest and have some R&R time. What do they get? Jesus needs to work again. But look with me in verse 34. He saw them, and notice what else it says. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. As a result, he began teaching them and talking about the kingdom and many things. He began teaching them, teaching about the kingdom, which in the end will all converge or climax in the person and the work of himself, the Messiah. He had compassion. He, you know, he wasn't irritated or agitated. He didn't say like, look, my, my peeps need some break. You all are always like hanging on like crazy. Please leave us for a couple of days and come back. Could have been well within his rights to do so. He doesn't. He says, you know what? He looks at them, has compassion on them, and begins to teach them. Misericordia Dei, mercy of God. Miserere in Latin means to pity, and cor means heart. That means God pitying us from the heart. But this Misericordia Dei is not some cheap divine emotion. No, it is emotion in action that God acts. God acts decisively in Jesus Christ. I know in, in, in this sanctuary I men mentioned this song before, and I want to share the lyrics of this song again. It's a, it's a group called Rock City, and they had a number one hit uh, with Adam Levine, um, who will be singing next Sunday at the Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, this thing is called Lock, the song is called Locked Away. You don't know it, you should Google and listen to the song. It's a wonderful song. First time I heard it, I had pulled over and I looked up the video and, you know, I was like, I listened to it like four or five times, maybe more, and began weeping when I thought about the power of this lyrics. And this is how it goes. If I get locked away and if we lost it all today, tell me honestly, would you still love me the same? If I showed you my flaws and I couldn't be strong, Tell me honestly, would you still love me the same? Now tell me, would you really ride for me? Baby, tell me, would you die for me? Would you spend your whole life with me? Would you be th there to always hold me down? I began weeping only because who, the question becomes, who is equal to such a task? They were singing this song and demanding, are you that person for me? Will you die for me? Will you ride with me? Will you always be there? And the fragility of human relationality is such that no one could say, yes, I am that person. So the tears on my cheeks were because the only one that I could sing this song to and say, you are the one who can fulfill the lyrics of this wonderful group called Rock City with Adam Levine is you, Jesus, because you alone would die for me. You alone was, you, you, you were locked away from me. He was in prison for me. He was executed for me. He lived and died for me in my place so that in his compassion, he's offering himself to me. Here we have a picture of Jesus in this gospel, tired as he was, and his plans are now temporarily re redirected, if not thwarted, and yet he demonstrates this compassion, embodies that mercy of God. 
I want to go to the second point because we're going to come back to compassion, as I mentioned to you. So the second point is cooperation. More specifically, apostolic cooperation, apostles cooperating. Notice with me in verses 36 and 37. We see a brief yet pivotal interaction between Jesus and the apostles. So it was already late in the day, and his disciples come to him, understandably, saying this is a remote place, and it's already very late, so let's send them home, because they can go to some place, surrounding villages, and buy themselves something to eat. So I was thinking of a, a, a helpful cultural analogy, and the only place I could think of was Bonnaroo, right? Bonnaroo Music Festival. I mean, it's like out there, right? I, I've never been there, but I heard it's out there and so on, right? I mean, but there aren't that many restaurants, but food trucks are now converging and all that. But think of a place that's remote, right? People are flocking themselves there. So here we have a potential threefold problem. One is paucity of restaurants. Not many restaurants around. And two is the, the incredible size of the people there. And three, that Jesus and the disciples had nothing to offer them by way of food, right? could be a worse trifecta of all problems. And this group of people who are now initially excited to hear Jesus may easily turn on a dime and say, you actually don't get to do what you promised you will, offering us the bread of life. So here is a problem, and here is a key point. Look what he says in verse 37. He answers them by saying, you give them something to eat. The grammatical construction in this verse is such that it is emphatic, which means if Jesus is saying, you give them something to eat. Not me, not them. You give them something to eat. So what is he doing? He's calling for this apostolic cooperation. He's throwing down the gauntlet and says, and offering a challenge and says, you, you, you have just come back from your first mission trip. You have witnessed God's work. Now we're about to be derailed because we got 5,000 people in front of us with no food. Come on, we can do better than that. But put yourself in that 12-person situation. Would we have believed this so quickly and said, yeah, 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 right, of course, we were just on this mission trip and we can feed 5,000 men, which means in that calculation, cultural calculation, that meant usually 5,000 women and 5,000 plus children. That means feeding 15,000 people. Imagine that. Some of you who have been in restaurant business, imagine feeding 15,000 people. That's a shockingly high number of people and Jesus is about to do it. And now I must offer an interlude and that is, I realize that this story has become a very controversial story. On the one hand, it is a very common story because all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, offer this story as an illustration of who Jesus was and what he was able to do, right? So it's a very, very kind of common story, but controversial in that, what is a controversy? What is a controversy? How do you feed 5,000 people with five loaves of fish and, and five, five loaves of bread and two fish? I can even get the grammar right, but you get what I mean. How do you do this? So some people have said, oh, you know, and, and they said, well, look at all these miracles. That, that's just kind of ancient myth, and that's not true. That's not the pathway that I've taken. I have no problems affirming that this happened at all, none at all, but at the same time, there is some truth that, that is beneath the miraculous event itself that we also need to pay attention to. On the one hand, it is clearly demonstrative of Jesus' power to change you know, ordinary courses of events and ordinary course of elements, ordinary types of elements, and multiply them, right? Jesus turning water into wine. Now, some of us might have a problem with that. Well, that didn't happen. No, that can't be true. 
This presents an equally kind of compelling problem at one level. And that's why for some people, okay, the Bible isn't true because these miraculous stories cannot possibly be true. Therefore, the entire edifice of Christianity is no longer credible. And that's part of the Enlightenment challenge upon Christianity. And, and if you want to talk to me about that, I'm writing a book about it, but that's not the point here. And I, I'm not going to talk a lot about that. Only to underscore the fact that people have had challenging problems with interpreting the story, right? But the, the, the point that I want to present to all of us is this. It is here, and we must do something with it. That's what I said to myself. When I was told that I'm going to be preaching on this day, on this text, I said, okay, i got to do something with this. I believe this story. I believe this happened. And, the, and I'm really beginning to prayerfully ask myself, what's the punchline here? What is really that we need to be paying attention to? It, first of all, shows the compassion of God in Jesus Christ. It also calls for the cooperation of the apostles to partner with the work of God, even though it is truly stupendous a task. It is seemingly and humanly impossible, yet God calls us to himself in that way. And it seems to me that throughout the history of the church, God has done God's work almost always with human agents in cooperation. Of course, there were periods when God did things himself. Jesus comes in those miracles, oftentimes without the cooperations of the apostles, but these cooperative stories are woven in together to demonstrate that even while he was with us, Jesus was cooperating and doing his work with his apostles. Teresa of Avila, a 16th century Spanish Christian, said this, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, yours are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. A John Chrysostom, a 4th century uh, Turkish preacher, a bishop of Constantinople, in his sermon on the Gospel of Matthew, said this, and he's emphasizing the fact that Christ, who could have done everything himself, is getting the cooperation from his followers. He took the loaves and broke them and gave them by his disciples, hereby to honor the disciples, and not in honor to them only, but also that when the miracle had been done, they may not disbelieve it nor forget it, when it had passed, their own hands bearing them witness. Wherefore also he suffers the multitudes first to have a sense of hunger and waits for these apostles to come to them and deliver the food to them, being minded by their own confessions and actions to prepossess them every one. Therefore also from them he receives the loaves that the testimonies of what was doing might be many and that they might become memorials of the miracle. Meaning this, that Jesus at least had 12 people who said, we were there when it happened. And then the multitudes of people, maybe they heard it through, you know, through. I don't think they got it right away. Because if you're, I think there are about 600 people, multiply this by eight times, right? 5,000 people, and let's say we're all sitting in 50s and 100s, and we don't have a micro, you know, microphone system, that means if you're way in the back, you have a hard time hearing what's going on. Jesus breaks the bread and gives thanks and began to distribute to them. And here is a very interesting point. Did you hear that language? It says right here that Jesus took the bread, right, in verse 41, and he looked up to heaven, gave thanks, broke the bread, and he gave to them, his disciples, to distribute to the people. You know what's going on here? In this book, book of Mark, as well as Matthew, 
It is a Eucharistic language. It is a language of the Lord's Supper. And here's what, what, what is going on, I think. If you're living in 70 AD, their problem is similar to our problem. What is that problem? The absence of Jesus. The bodily absence of Jesus. Right? Are you with me? This is a very important point, please. So if you're, because we tend to think that if I were back in the, you know, Jesus' time, I would have believed more passionately. I don't know about that, actually. And that's for the next time. But here, the writer is trying to underscore this point. He's saying, okay, what Jesus does is even at that 5,000 feeding miracle, he broke the bread and gave thanks. It is a very similar way that he will do the same at the Last Supper with his intimate disciples. As we do here at Christ's Press with, you know, a couple thousand people every Sunday, we come and take tiny morsel of bread, you know, and then tiny bit of grape juice or wine, right? And then, but that is the same kind of connective tissue is that what Christ does. See, what Christ did in the feeding of the multitude was, yes, he fed 5,000 people miraculously, but in the same way, in the same way, that same Christ is feeding us unto life eternal as we come to this table of bread and wine and grape juice. That same faith is required. What is required is you believing that Christ is sufficient for me. Here is that challenge. Here is that shocking factor of Jesus feeding the multitude. What was truly miraculous? First of all, abundance of food and leftover of 12 baskets. Again, the gospel writers are very careful. The number 12 in the Jewish tradition and religion had a very symbolic significance. 12 tribes, 12 patriarchs, 12 disciples. So it is not only literally true, but also symbolically true, kind of pointing us to something bigger as well. Also, Jesus was not bound by physical limitations. And what is truly super abundant is his compassion toward the crowds. Let me move to the third point, which is popular confusion. Confusion. So compassion, cooperation, and confusion. Popular confusion. I often wondered about this. Did they get what Jesus was trying to do here? What was Jesus trying to do? Was he just trying to satiate the hunger of the people who were going to be hungry? At one level, yes. But there is always further reason for Jesus' miracles, right? And how do we know that? Just read the Gospel of John chapter 6 because the same account that gets a very much heightened spiritual meaning because it tells us in John 6 that they were really excited about what Jesus did and guess what they did? Same thing that you and I do to Jesus. Especially for those of you who are entrepreneurial, Guess what they did? They suggested to Jesus, hey, why don't you and I go into business together? And the business is, you become our king. Because we need, let's face it, friends, what is our number one problem, aside from the spiritual problem, what is our number one problem of our world in many ways throughout history has been economic problem, right? Income distribution, wealth distribution, poor and well-to-do and all of that, right? Economic problem, and Jesus has a perfect chance to solve their problem. He can start a worldwide industry, global industry, of taking care of hunger issues. I'm not belittling the issue. It is a serious issue. And therefore, what is all the more intriguing to me is Jesus is given the opportunity. They want to make him king by force because here is a guy who can offer this kind of first century Jewish catering service to all the world. We're going to be well fed and this is going to be our solution to our real pressing problem of the world. And guess what Jesus does? He walks away. My kingdom is not of this world. And what does he do? He says, I am the bread from heaven. 
I am the bread of life. And people said, huh? We don't want that. And in fact, Fyodor Dostoevsky in his book, Brothers Karamazov, in that story, The Grand Inquisitor, that Grand Inquisitor shows up and condemns and damns Jesus for failing to do that, for failing to do what? Turning stones into bread. Right? It's one of Jesus' three temptations. First temptation, in fact, was that, the economic problem. Let's turn these stones into bread because you could have solved the problem of the world and people will have followed you and yet you don't do it. So he says, look, you should have done it. Keep turning stones into bread. We'll create the best Jewish catering service for the first century ever. We'll give you five loaves of bread and two fish and you will continue to turn that into you know, sumptuous meal for 5,000 and 10,000 and 15,000 people. But yet you don't do it. So we are confused. And I get that confusion. Because if the kingdom of, kingdom of God was only about solving our economic problems, health problems, right? Class problems, relational, if that was all there was, if the gospel is only about health and wealth and prosperity, then I think far more people will be following Jesus. And given the way of the world, Far more people will be so quickly disillusioned when illness strikes, when relationships break down, and so we're left with confusion. If the journey with God and toward the city of God was glittering only with gold and not with tears of confusion and sadness, then, like I said, far more people would want to be followers of Christ. Let me bring it home. I don't know about you, but I get confused sometimes. I think as Billy Joel was saying, only the good die young. Sometimes I look around the world and say, you know what? If I didn't have the glasses of faith, I may be so easily led to conclude that there is no justice in this world. Is God really around? There are truly confusing aspects to our life journey here. And yet, and yet for me, there is enough presence of God's love and mercy they would continue to press upon me to forge ahead. But that doesn't mean that I don't have doubts. doesn't mean that I don't have questions. That doesn't mean that I'm not confused sometimes. This past week alone, I sat down with and hugged people who are in life transition, meaning losing family members from life to death, career transition from having a very well-paying job to none at all, marriage transition from being married to not. As I sat down with a friend of mine, he asked, I've been following Jesus for all these years. Why is God doing this to me? He wasn't saying as a way of saying, I'm done with this God. I'm done with this Jesus. He is saying, however, I am confused and I need help. And I think that's what the community is all about. That's why we come right back to the first point of the sermon, compassion. If the church community fails to demonstrate and embody and incarnate the compassion of Christ, then there is no place for other people to go. This reformer John Calvin believed that one of the most vital aspects of the gospel ministry has to be the diaconate. That's why I love in the Presbyterian tradition that there's a monthly offering called the diaconate offering that is designed to help alleviate the material needs of the congregants. So I love it. It's both spiritual and material because they're woven together in the mix. Yes, my friend is confused. Yes, I am confused. 
As a student of mine asked me recently, she's from Burma, she's doing her theology doctorate. She says, why is God allowing this happen to the Rohingyas? The Rohingyas are the, 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 the persecuted minority group that are now having to flee Burma back to Bangladesh. It's creating a truly a refugee and humanitarian crisis. So both macrocosmically as well as individually, whether it is in Burma or here in, you know, in New Jersey or Tennessee, the problems are ever with us and near us. And at the same time, closer yet, we see by the eyes of faith, is God with us and for us? Who, when looking at us, does not judge us as according to our desert, does not judge us in light of what we have done or have not done. God will look at us and say, I have already judged you in my Son. As you find yourself in my Son, I look at you with mercy, I look at you with compassion, so that you, as you gaze at me, will become increasingly transformed, so that you will demonstrate, so that you will embody the compassion of God. As we come to the table, let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts, prepare our hearts to be truly that embodiment of that compassion of Christ as our world, as we ourselves need that all the more. Shall we pray together? Gracious God, we thank you. Thank you for being ever near us and with us. Lord, thank you for my dear friends here at Christ Prayers whose life together with us has meant so much for me and my family. Lord, we acknowledge that because of our own sins, because of the sin around in our cosmos and in our relationships, sometimes we get confused. And so when we are confused, help us right back to the compassion of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, even amid our compassion, our confusion, you demonstrate yourself to be the compassionate one. And not only that, you call us out of our confusion into that work of cooperation with the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we thank you for that. And as we come to the table, O oh Lord, prepare our hearts in a way that only you can prepare us because we cannot sufficiently prepare ourselves. So all the conditions having been met, help us to come with humility and joy and receive these elements as transform transformative elements into life eternal. Thank you for all that you do and all that you are. We love you, for you have loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.